Good evening. My name is Sergio Verdu. Welcome to the uh, Vanuxem lecture on behalf of the Public Lectures Committee. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about this lecture. Uh, the Lewis Clark Vanuxem uh, series was founded in uh, 1912 with a bequest of $25,000 under the will of Lewis Clark Vanuxem of the class of 1879. Lecturers in this series have included Edwin Hubble, Thomas Mann, Claude Shannon, and John von Neumann. Um, tonight's lecture uh, will be introduced by Professor Michael Cook, who is a specialist in Islamic history in our uh, Department of Near Eastern Studies. Professor Cook. It's a very considerable privilege to welcome Jared Diamond here tonight. And you may be wondering why a privilege like that would fall to the lot of somebody in Near Eastern studies. Because Jared Diamond, after all, is many things, but whatever he is, he is not a professor of Near Eastern studies. He is, in fact, a professor of physiology in the medical school at UCLA. But that in itself doesn't really tell you very much. In point of fact, his major research activity, ever since 1964, I think, has been in evolutionary biology. And it relates to the birds of New Guinea and Melanesia and islands in those parts. Over the years, he's made, I think, 19 expeditions in connection with his study of the birds of, the, of that region. Uh, he's published literally dozens of papers in scientific journals. And he's also published two major research monographs on the birds of the region, one of them back in 1972 and the most recent one just last year in collaboration with an author whom I, who I learned a little while ago is now 98. But where in all this is there a connection with Near Eastern studies? Well, there isn't, but let me move on a little. <laughs> There's something that you need to remember about biologists. In one respect, they're rather like the germs that they study. That's to say, they can jump species. And more than that, they can jump whole orders. And that's exactly what Professor Diamond has done. From birds, he went on to develop a lively interest in primates, including the primate species which is so abundantly present in this room tonight. In this field, too, he's published a couple of books, but this time they're books that you and I will find fully accessible. The first one, which he published back in 1992, is called, it has a rather teasing title, The Third Chimpanzee. And what he's telling us is that uh, we humans could perfectly well be classified as just another species of chimp. The second book has an even more inflammatory title. It's called, Why is Sex 
fun. <laughs> and it's such a hot item that if you go to the Firestone Reserve, they won't let you have it for more than three hours at a stretch. <laughs> but it is, nevertheless, like everything else that Professor Diamond writes, it's a serious answer to a serious question. So Professor Diamond is an eminent and versatile biologist whose interests extend to humans. But that still isn't enough to explain why he, why he should be introduced by a specialist in Near Eastern studies. And you must be wondering by now what he, what he, what he can have done wrong to have such a fate inflicted upon him. Well, he did do something, but I'm very happy to say that he did it right. What he did was to publish Guns, Germs, and Steel. That was in 1997, which in fact was a bumper year for the diamond reading public because that's when Why Sex Fun also was published. Now, at this point, I can make the connection with Near Eastern studies. At the heart of Guns, Germs, and Steel is the most illuminating account that I've ever read of the single most important event that ever took place in the history or prehistory of the Near East, namely the emergence, the earliest emergence of farming on this planet some 10,000 years ago. But having said that, having made the connection, I suppose that I really do have to admit that the book isn't just a contribution to Near Eastern studies. It also deals with the emergence of farming elsewhere on the planet, and it analyzes the long-term consequences of that momentous development. In other words, you could pretty much say that the book poses and answers the question, how did we get to where we are now? The book has in fact been immensely successful. Uh, just to give you one very small example, uh, I've used it as the centerpiece of a course on world history that I teach here on campus, but I don't think that that uh, has made much difference to the overall picture of the sales figures. The word on the street is that the book, in the five years since it was published, it has sold something approaching one million copies. It's not the kind of figure we're used to in Near Eastern studies, I can assure you. <laughs> And it's not just the number of copies sold, it's also the awards it has won. Uh, the Pulitzer Prize is just one of the prestigious awards uh, that the book has earned. Tonight, Professor Diamond is talking to us about collapses of ancient societies and their lessons for today. I have a strong hunch that we'll be treated to the same combination of good science, good history, and eloquence that we saw in guns, germs, and steel. Though I also have a certain fear that some of the lessons for today may be horribly topical. But please join me in welcoming Jared Diamond to Princeton.
be able to hear me okay? Can you hear okay up there? Good. It's a great pleasure for me to come back to Princeton, which I visited for the first time around 1956, because I was in the class of 1958 in another institution, Harvard College, that held triangular debates, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And so I visited here to debate you. I no longer remember the result. It was evidently not neither a traumatic experience nor one of the great triumphs of my life. I then visited frequently in the late 1960s and during the 1970s when first Robert MacArthur and then Bob May were in ecology here. And I believe that my last visit here would have been around 15 years ago because I was born in the Northeast anyway and I'm now a transplanted Californian. It's always nice to be back in the Northeast and back at Princeton in particular. This evening I'd like to talk to you about a romantic mystery, the mystery of collapses of ancient societies that left behind abandoned monuments of which all of us see pictures as teenagers and we wonder about them and then eventually we go on to do other things with our careers, but now I've come back to this question that fascinates us as teenagers. It's the question of the fates of societies like Angkor Wat and the Maya cities, the Anasazi cities, the Easter Islanders with their giant stone statues, Harappan Indus Valley civilization, Great Zimbabwe, the civilizations of the Near East with their monuments. Why did these ancient civilizations abandon their cities after building them at such great effort? I define collapse to mean a drastic decrease in human population numbers and or in political, economic, or social complexity over a large area persisting for a long time. Why these ancient collapses? This question isn't just a romantic mystery, but it's also a challenging intellectual problem. Why is it that some societies collapsed while others did not collapse? But even more, this question is relevant to the environmental problems that we face today. Problems such as deforestation, the impending end of the tropical rainforests, overfishing, soil erosion, soil salinization, global climate change, full utilization of the world's fresh water supplies, bumping up against the photosynthetic ceiling, exhaustion of energy reserves, accumulation of toxics in water, food, and soil, increase of the world's population, and increase of our per capita input, the main problems that threaten our existence over the coming decades. What, if anything, can the past teach us about why some societies are more unstable than others, and about how some societies have managed to overcome their environmental problems. Can we extract from the past any useful guidance that will help us in the coming decades? There's overwhelming recent evidence from archaeology and other disciplines that some of these romantic mystery collapses have been self-inflicted ecological suicides, resulting from inadvertent human impacts on the environment, impacts similar to the impacts causing the problems that we face today. 
even though these past societies like the Easter Islanders and Anasazi had far fewer people and were packing far less potent destructive technology than we do today. It turns out that these ancient collapses pose a very complicated problem. It's not just that all these societies collapsed, but one can also think of places in the world where societies have gone on for thousands of years without any signs of collapse, such as Japan, Java, Tonga, and Tikapia. What is it then that made some societies fragile and other societies robust? It's also a complicated problem because the collapses usually prove to be multifactorial. This is not an area where we can expect simple answers. What I'm talking about, the collapses of societies and their applications to our risk today, this may sound initially depressing, but you'll see that my main conclusions are going to be upbeat. Rather than begin with some remote ancient society in a fragile environment, I'd like to begin close to home with an American society in what would seem to be the most pristine, undamaged environment in the lower 48 states. Um, that's the, the state of Montana, in particular the southwestern corner of Montana, um, which I first visited at the age of 15 to work on the hay harvest in the Big Hole Basin for a couple of summers. And now for the last five years, I've been returning to the Bitterroot Valley in the Big Hole Basin to take my 15 and a half year old twin sons fly fishing. And in fact, last Sunday, um, I had the treat of visiting again the ranches, the four brothers and sisters whom I worked in the 1950s when they were in their 20s and 30s. And I saw them again now in their late 70s and up to 83, working hard as ever on their ranches. So this is a wonderful part of the United States. Half of the state of Montana is federal government land, most of it national forest. Montana lies near the top of the lower 48 states in its area, near the bottom in population, and so it's, I think, at the bottom of the lower 48 states in population density. The economy of Montana has traditionally depended on three things, agriculture, logging of the extensive forests, and mining, particularly copper. The town of Butte, about an hour's drive away from the Big Hole Basin, um, has had a rich copper mine, so Butte gets the name of the richest hill on earth. Until a few decades ago, because of these three pillars of the economy, Montana ranked around 10th in the US among states in per capita income, so Montana is was one of the richest parts of the world's richest nation, one of the least damaged parts of the United States environmentally, and surely in no imminent danger of collapse. It's also a very conservative state, Montana, and the Bitterroot Valley, where I've been visiting, is the most conservative part of this conservative state. 
Most of my friends there are Republicans. When there's an election, my one Democratic friend tells me that he cries at every election. Most Montanans bristle at the suggestion of interference by the government, especially the federal government. Montanans stress private property rights. They're opposed to any government zoning or planning. Most of them scorn environmentalists as tree huggers who are taking jobs away from the people of Montana. Today, Montana, especially that southwest corner, suffers from severe problems. Montana now stands next to the last among American states in per capita income, and the Bitterroot Valley, Ravalli County, is next to last among Montana counties in per capita income. Seventy percent of school children in the Bitterroot Valley are on federal food aid, which is a way of saying that the federal government considers their parents to be living at or below the poverty level. Montanans love their environment and their lifestyle, but their children are leaving the state because there are no jobs for them, and Montana is closing rather than building schools. This conservative county, Ravalli County, in this conservative state, is starting to draw up local planning and zoning regulations. What happened? There was a host of things coming from over the horizon that has caught up with Montanans. The mines have mostly been closed, logging and agriculture are both in steep decline. As for the mines, Montanans have realized that mining left behind huge problems of toxic arsenic, copper, and acid accumulating in the rivers, in the soil, and in the groundwater. The cleanup costs for the mines are billions of dollars. The mining companies involved have mostly declared bankruptcy in order to avoid their responsibility, um, leaving the costs on the citizens of Montana and on the federal government super, um, super fund. And so most Montanans, most Montana voters, although not politicians yet, have had it with mining. And in 1999, Montanans passed a ballot measure banning cyanide extraction gold mining to the astonishment of Montana's politicians and mining industry. Some of my Montana friends say that in retrospect, given the billion, multi-billion dollar cost of the cleanup, and given how little of the earnings of the mines came to Montana, in retrospect, it would have been better if Montana had never mined copper at all, but had just bought the copper from Chile. Montana would be better off today, although not Chile. Montana also suffers from severe problems today of forest fires, resulting from a century of changes in forest composition, caused in turn by a combination of logging and fire suppression. So when I, whenever I fly into Basula Airport, the, the head of the valley, and then drive down the valley, I count the fires that I see burning in the valley. On my last flight in 13 days ago, there were two fires, forest fires burning in the valley. Sometimes they're natural fires, sometimes they're fires set for, set intentionally for um, control of the forest structure. Because of global warming, in the, the Bitterroot Valley itself, the floor is a desert, there's not enough rainfall for agriculture, and yet the Bitterroot Valley used to be is called the Banana Belt of Montana. It's the warmest part of Montana. It was the center of Montana agriculture. The water for agriculture in the Bitterroot came from irrigation from the snowpack on the mountains, on the Bitterroot Mountains, but because of global warming, the snowpack necessary for irrigation agriculture is decreasing. 
At the present rate we're going, the glaciers in Glacial National Park will all be melted off in about 30 or 40 years. So Glacial National Park will be Glacial National Park without glaciers, and the Bitterroot Valley is not going to have irrigation agriculture left when it doesn't have snowpack. Salinization and drought have crippled agriculture in eastern Montana. There's widespread erosion from roads and from logging. Montana, like most of the intermontane west, is at relatively high elevation, high latitude, so it's cold. There's a short growing season. It's remote from population centers elsewhere in the United States, meaning high transportation costs. And as a result, anything that can be grown in Montana can be grown more cheaply and transported more cheaply elsewhere in the United States. So Montana agriculture is being outcompeted. The costs of agriculture are rising everywhere in the United States, but the price that my ranch friends receive per cow has been the same for the past 25 years, so that farming and ranching are becoming increasingly economical and farms are rapidly being abandoned. There are massive problems with introduced pest species, introduced weeds, weeds in the pastures that are inedible for cattle and in the national forests. Weeds are now costing Montanans hundreds of millions of dollars per year. Other introduced pests are a disease called whirling disease um, that has arrived and affects um, trout and other fish in Montana, a big blow to the tourism, to recreational fishing. And even more worrying, chronic wasting disease of deer and elk, although it has not yet reached Montana, has reached the deer and elk herd in Wyoming and in Wisconsin. This is basically Creutzfeldt-Jakob, a mad cow disease, but in deer and elk, and we don't yet know if it's transmissible to humans. If it is, then it'll be something really worrisome. Montana's population of retirees is rising, most of them from California, but that doesn't mean that the population of my state, California, is falling. Instead, California's population is rising for other reasons. And as the population of retirees is rising, the population of children in Montana is falling. More than half of Montana's income now comes not from money earned in Montana, but from out-of-state investments, pensions, and businesses. If Montana were an isolated country, Montana would be in a state of collapse. Montana's not going to collapse because it's supported by the rest of the United States. And yet other societies have collapsed in the past and are collapsing now or will collapse in the future from problems similar to those facing Montana. The same problems that we've seen throughout human history, problems of water, forests, topsoil, irrigation, salinization, climate change, erosion, introduce pests and disease and, and population. Problems similar to those faced by Montanans today are the ones posing problems in Afghanistan, Pakistan, China, Australia, Nepal, Ethiopia, and so on. But those countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, etc., have the misfortune not to be embedded within a rich country that supports them, like the United States. Visiting again Montana just brought home to me that these problems of ancient civilizations are not remote problems of romantic, mysterious people. They're problems of the modern world, including of the United States. I mentioned then that there's a long list of past societies that did collapse, but there were also past societies that 
did not collapse, what is it then that makes some societies more fragile than others? Environmental factors clearly play a role. Archaeological evidence accumulated over the last several decades has revealed environmental factors beyond, behind many of these ancient collapses. Again, to appreciate the modern relevance of all this, um, if one asked an academic ecologist to name the countries in the modern world that suffer from most severe problems of environmental damage and or overpopulation, and if this ecologist never read the newspapers and didn't know anything about modern political problems, the ecologists would say, well, that's a no-brainer. The countries today that have ecological and population problems, they're obvious. Haiti, Somalia, Rwanda, Burundi, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, Philippines, Indonesia, Solomon Islands. And then you ask a politician who doesn't know, or a strategic planner who knows um, or cares nothing about ecological problems, what do you see as the political tinderboxes of the modern world, the danger spots? And the politician or strategic plan would say, it's a no-brainer. Haiti, Somalia, Rwanda, Burundi, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, Philippines, Indonesia, Solomon Islands, the same list. And that simply makes the point that countries that get into environmental trouble are likely to get into political trouble both for themselves and to cause political troubles around the world. In trying to understand the collapses of ancient societies, I quickly realized that it's not enough to look at the inadvertent impact of humans on their environment. It's usually more complicated. Instead, I've arrived at a checklist of five things that I look at to understand the collapses of societies. And in some cases, all five of these things are operating. Usually several of them are. The first of these factors is envi environmental damage, inadvertent damage to the environment through means such as deforestation, soil erosion, salinization, overhunting, etc. The second item on the checklist is climate change, such as cooling or increased aridity. People can hammer away at their environment and get away with it as long as the climate is benign, warm, wet and the people are likely to get in trouble when the climate turns against them, so getting colder or drier. So climate change and human environmental impact interact, not surprisingly. Still a third consideration is that one has to look at a society's relations with hostile neighbors. Most societies have chronic hostile relations with some of their neighbors, and societies may succeed in fending off those hostile neighbors for a long time. They're most likely to fail to hold off the hostile neighbors when the society itself gets weakened for environmental or any other reasons. And that's given rise, for example, to the long-standing debate about the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Was conquest by barbarians really the fundamental cause or was it just that barbarians were at the gates of, at the frontiers of the Roman Empire for many centuries? Rome succeeded in holding them off as long as Rome was strong, and then when Rome got weakened by other things, Rome failed and fell to the barbarians. And similarly, there are likely to be, we know that there were military factors in the fall of Angkor Wat in Cambodia and possibly in the fall of classic Lower Maya civilization. So, 
relations with hostiles interacts with environmental damage and climate change. Similarly, relations with friendlies interacts. Almost all societies depend in part upon trade with neighboring friendly societies. And if one of those friendly societies itself runs into environmental problems and collapses for environmental reasons, that collapse may then drag down their trade partners. It's something that interests us today, given that we are dependent for oil upon imports from countries that have some political stability in a fragile environment. And it was also a case in the past. I'll mention that the collapse of Henderson and Pitcairn Island Society was secondary to the collapse of their trade partners. And finally, in addition to those four factors on the checklist, one always has to ask about people's cultural response. Why is it that people fail to perceive the problems developing around them, or if they perceive them, why do they fail to solve the problems that would eventually do them in? Why did some people, some peoples perceive and recognize their problems and others not? I'll give you four examples of these past societies that collapsed. One is Easter Island. I'll discuss it first because Easter is the simplest case we've got, the closest approximation to a collapse resulting purely from human environmental damage. Second case are the collapses of Henderson and Pitcairn Island in the Pacific, which were due to the combination of self-inflicted environmental damage plus the loss of external trade due to the collapse of a friendly trade partner. Third, I'll discuss closest to home, the Anasazi in the U.S. Southwest, whose collapse was a combination of environmental damage and climate change. And then finally, I'll mention the Greenland Norse, who ended up all dead because of a combination of all five of these factors. So let's take then the first of these examples, the collapse of Easter Island society. Um, any of you here in this room, have any of you had the good fortune to have visited Easter Island? Good for you, you lucky person. I'm going there next month. I've wanted for decades to go there. Um, Easter is the most remote, habitable scrap of land in the world. It's an island in the Pacific, 2,000 miles west of the coast of Chile, and something like 1,300 miles from the nearest Polynesian island. It was settled by other Polynesians coming from the west, sometime around A.D. 800, and it was so remote that after Polynesians arrived at Easter Island, nobody else arrived there. Nobody left Easter, as far as we know, and so the Easter story is uncomplicated by relations with external hostels or friendlies. There weren't any. The Easter Islanders rose and fell by themselves. It's, Easter is a relatively fragile environment, dry with 40 inches of rain per year. It's most famous because of the giant stone statues, those big statues weighing up to 80 tons, stone statues that were carved in a volcanic quarry and then dragged up over the lip of the quarry and then 13 miles down to the coast and then raised up vertically onto platforms. All this accomplished by people without any pack, without any draft animals, without pulleys, without machines. These 80-ton statues were dragged and erected under human muscle power alone. And yet when Europeans arrived at Easter in 1722, the statues that the islanders themselves had erected at such great personal effort, the islanders were in the process of 
throwing down their own statues, Easter Island society was in a state of collapse. How, why, and who erected the statues, and why were they thrown down? Well, the how, why, and who has been settled in the last several decades by archaeological discoveries. Um, Easter Islanders were typical Polynesians, and the cause of the collapse became clear from archaeological work in the last 15 years, particularly from paleobotanical work and identification of animal bones in archaeological sites. Today, Easter Island is barren. It's a grassland. There are no native trees whatsoever on Easter Island. Not a likely setting for the development of a great civilization. And yet these paleobotanical studies identifying pollen grains and lake cores show that when the Polynesians arrived at Easter Island, it was covered by a tropical forest that included the world's largest palm tree and dandelions of tree height. So Paul, and there were land birds, six, at least six species of land birds, 37 species of breeding seabirds, the largest collection of breeding seabirds anywhere in the Pacific. Polynesians settled Easter. They began to clear the forest for their gardens, for firewood, for using as rollers and levers to raise the giant statues, and then to build canoes with which to go out into the ocean and catch porpoises and tuna. And so in the oldest archaeological layers in the hearths, one sees the bones of porpoises and tuna um, that the people were eating. They ate the land birds. They ate the seabirds. They ate the fruits of the palm trees. The population of Easter grew to an estimated about 10,000 people, until by the year 1600, all of the trees and all of the land birds and all but one of the seabirds on Easter Island itself were extinct. The other sea, some of the seabirds were confined to breeding on offshore stacks. The deforestation and the elimination of the birds had consequences for people. First, without trees, they could no longer transport and erect the statues, so they stopped carving statues. Secondly, without trees, they had no firewood except for their own agricultural wastes. Thirdly, without trees to cover the ground, they suffered from soil erosion, and hence agricultural yields decreased. And then without trees, they couldn't build canoes, so they couldn't go out to the ocean to catch porpoises. There were only a few seabirds left, the, because they didn't have pigs, the largest animal left to eat with the disappearance of porpoises and tuna were humans. And Polynesian society then collapsed in an epidemic of cannibalism. The spear points from that final phase still litter the ground of Easter Island um, today. The population crashed from about 10,000 to an estimated 2,000 with no possibility of rebuilding the original society because the trees, most of the birds, and some of the soil were, were gone. I think one of the reasons that the collapse of Easter Island so grabs people um, is that it looks like a metaphor for us today. Easter Island isolated in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, nobody to turn to to get help, nowhere to flee once Easter Island itself collapsed. In the same way today, um, one can look at planet Earth in the middle of the galaxy, and if we too get into trouble, there's no way that we can flee and nowhere, no people to whom we can turn for help out there in the galaxy. I can't help wondering um, what the Easter Islander who chopped down the last palm tree said as he or she did it. Was he saying, 
What about our jobs? Do you care more for trees than for our jobs, of us loggers? Or maybe we're saying, what about my private property rights? Get the big government of the chiefs off my back. Or maybe you're saying, you, you're predicting environmental disaster, but your environmental models are untested. We need more research before we can take action. <laughs> or perhaps he was saying, don't worry, technology will solve all our problems. <laughs> so that was the collapse of Easter Island, my, first of my four cases. Second of my four cases, briefly I want to mention the collapse of two other Polynesian islands, Henderson and Pitcairn Island. Anyone here been to Pitcairn Island? It's really remote. Pitcairn Island is, there are planes to Easter, but there are no planes to Pitcairn. Pitcairn Island is famous as the place that the bounty mutineers went after the mutiny on the bounty because Pitcairn was remote and uninhabited and they wanted to get, wanted to get away and not be discovered. So the, the bounty mutineers went to this uninhabited island, which is again in the eastern fringe of Polynesia, about 400 miles from the nearest island, Mangareva. And when the bounty mutineers scrambled up Pitcairn, on the first day they discovered on top of this uninhabited island Polynesian temples and statues. There had been Polynesians on Pitcairn Island and on the nearby atoll of Henderson Island, about 80 miles from Pitcairn, often considered the most pristine atoll in the world, in the world until archaeologists discovered the remains of Polynesian society there too. Again, archaeological work has shown that Pitcairn and Henderson were colonized by Polynesians sometime around A.D. 1000 from Mangareva. Mangareva was a larger island capable of supporting thousands of Polynesians. Pitcairn was small, about four square miles. It could support about 250 Polynesians. Henderson would have supported about 50 Polynesians. But there was trade between these three islands. Um, two Pitcairn and Henderson, Mangareva exported oyster shell for making fish hooks lacking at Pitcairn and Henderson. The Mangarevans exported crops and livestock, and undoubtedly they also exported people, trade partners, and marriage partners, because in a society of 50, people will not be able to find marriage partners without breaking the incest rules. In return, the Pitcairn Islanders had the good fortune that Pitcairn has the best stone for making stone tools in the Eastern Pacific. So Pitcairn volcanic glass, easily recognized, was exported to Mangareva. And Henderson was a source of luxury goods, breeding sea turtles and parrots whose feathers were prized. Societies went on on Henderson and Pitcairn Island for several centuries. Environmental problems developed on Henderson, and particularly on Pitcairn, due to deforestation. But what did Henderson and Pitcairn in was that Mangareva itself developed severe environmental problems, not as bad as Easter, but still substantial deforestation. So the Mangarevan society collapsed in an epidemic of cannibalism itself. And with the collapse of Mangareva and the destruction of much of the forest, the Mangarevans stopped sending out canoes, so Pitcairn and Henderson were cut off from their imports. And without canoes, everybody on Pitcairn and Henderson ended up dead. We know better about the time course on Henderson from archaeological work. After the canoes stopped coming, bringing the stone for stone tools, Henderson Island has lived on for about 150 years, which would be six Polynesian generations, without new stone coming in on an island that has no stone at all. It's just an uplifted coral atoll. 
The Henderson Islanders resorted to making their axes by taking giant clams and taking the hinge of the giant clam, which is the hardest thing that they could find on the island, and pathetically using that to make their, their axes. But after 150 years, um, everybody on Easter and Henderson, too, ended up dead. Why is it that among all Polynesian islands, Easter was the only one that ended up totally deforested and Mangareva extensively deforested, whereas among other Polynesian islands, Tongan, Tahitian, Tikapia, and other islands went on for thousands of years. The University of Hawaii archaeologist Barry Roulette and I have been involved in a project. Barry has assembled a wonderful database of 80 Pacific islands and their degree of deforestation at the end of the Polynesian era on first European contact. And then he's assembled for each island environmental variables that might correlate with deforestation. And it turns out that Easter was deforested because on almost all counts, it was the most fragile Polynesian island. Easter was relatively dry. When you cut down trees in a dry area, the trees regrow more slowly than in a wet area. Easter had the misfortune to be dry, relatively low elevation, so there was no carry down of rain and nutrients from the highlands. High latitude and cold, where tree growth is lower. Remote, so no escape valve for the population. Relatively small, it's easier to deforest a small island. Old, so the soil nutrients have been leached out for long times. Interestingly, there's also an effect of what's called the Andesite Line in the Pacific. Islands west of the Andesite Line that runs through Fiji and Tonga have their vol volcanoes blowing out ash that renews the fertility of the soil. East of the Andesite Line, the volcanoes spew out lava. Um, instead of blowing ash over a wide area. So islands east of the Andesite line, like Easter, are particularly prone to deforestation. Those in the west have their soil fertility renewed by ash. And then, interestingly, a variable that I would never have dreamed of, the fallout of continental dust from Central Asia that gets blown eastwards across the Pacific turns out to be the principal source of nutrients coming into older Pacific islands that have been leached to their nutrients. But Easter at the far eastern fringe of the Pacific has the cleanest, most dust-free year. So Easter was deforested because, not because the people were particularly silly or careless, but because they were faced with the hardest environmental problem. Easter was on all counts the most, the most fragile environment in the Pacific. And that then is an example of how environmental variables before we even get to the cultural ones, which I will, of how environmental variables can help, help us understand why some societies are more fragile than others, namely that they have the bad luck to be dealt a more fragile environment. My next to last example involves the Anasazi in our southwest, in the Four Corners area of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah. How many of you here have been to either Mesa Verde or Chaco Canyon? Or okay. Looks like nearly half of you. Uh, you know that yeah, it's very striking to, to visit, say, Chaco Canyon, um, where there are still the ruins of the biggest skyscrapers erected in the United States until the Chicago skyscrapers in, erected in Chicago's loop in the 1870s and 1880s. But the skyscrapers of Chaco Canyon were erected by Native Americans, the Anasazi, up to six-story buildings with up to 600 rooms. 
the Anasazi buildup began around AD 600 with the arrival of the Mexican crops of corn, squash, and beans. And in that relatively dry area, again, it's very striking today to drive through an area where today either nobody is living at all or nobody is living by agriculture. At Chaco Canyon itself, there are a couple of houses of national park ranges importing their food and then nobody else living within 20 or 30 miles. And yet to realize and to see the remains on the ground, this used to be a densely populated agricultural environment. The Anasazi were ingenious um, at managing to survive in that environment with low, fluctuating, unpredictable rainfall and with nutrient-poor soils. Their population built up. They fed themselves with agriculture, in some cases irrigation agriculture, channeled very carefully to flood out over the fields. They cut down trees for construction and firewood. In each area, they would develop environmental problems by cutting down trees and exhausting soil nutrients, but they dealt with those problems by abandoning their sites after a few decades and moving on to a new site. It's possible to reconstruct Anasazi history in great detail for two reasons. Tree rings, because this is a dry climate, the southwest. From tree rings, um, you can identify from the rings in the trees of the roof beams what year, 1116, not 1115 AD, what year the tree in that roof was cut down. And also, those cute little rodents in the southwest, pack rats, that run around gathering bits of vegetation in their nests and then abandon their nests after 50 years. A pack rat midden is basically a time capsule of the vegetation growing within 50 yards of the pack rat midden over a period of 50 years. And my friend Julio Betancourt, who was near a Anasazi ruin and happened to see a pack rat midden, whose date he knew nothing about, was astonished to see in what's now a treeless environment, in this pack rat midden were the needles of pinion pine and juniper. So Julio wondered whether that was an old midden. He took it back, radiocarbon dated it, and lo and behold, it was something like AD 800. So the pack rat middens are time capsules, time capsules of local vegetation going back something like 20 or 30,000 years, allowing us to reconstruct what happened. What happened is that the Anasazi deforested the area around their settlements until they were having to go further and further away for their fuel and their construction timber. At the end, they were getting their logs, logs weighing, neatly cut logs, uniform, weighing on the average 600 pounds, 16 feet long. The 600-pound, 16-foot logs were cut at the end on the tops of mountains up to 75 miles away and about 4,000 feet above the Anasazi settlements and then dragged back by people with no transport or pack animals to the Anasazi settlements themselves. So deforestation spread. That was the one environmental problem. And then the other environmental problem um, was the cutting of arroyos in the southwest when water flow gets channeled, for example, in irrigation ditches, then fast water flow is run off from desert rains, digs a trench in the channel, and digs a trench deeper and deeper. So those of you who have been to Chaco Canyon will have seen those arroyos up to 30 feet deep. 
And today, if the water level drops down in the arroyos, that's not a problem for farmers because we got pumps. But the Anasazi did not have pumps. And so when the irrigation ditches became incised by arroyo cutting, and when the water level in the ditches dropped down below the field levels, they can no longer do irrigation agriculture. For a while, they got away with these inadvertent environmental impacts. There were droughts around 1040 and droughts around 1090, but at both times, the Anasazi hadn't yet filled up the landscape, so they could move to other parts of the landscape not yet exploited. And their population continued to grow. And then in Chaco Canyon, when a drought arrived in 1117, at that point, there was no more unexploited landscape, no more empty land to which to shift. In addition, at that point, Chaco Canyon was a complex society. Lots of stuff was getting imported into Chaco. Stone tools, pottery, turquoise, probably food was being exported into Chaco. Archaeologists can't detect anything material that went out of the Chaco Valley. And whenever you see a city into which material stuff is moving and no material stuff is leaving, you think in the modern world of the, the model of New York City or Rome, that's to say, out of, or Washington or Rome, that's to say, you suspect that out of that city is going political control or religious control in return for which the peasants in the periphery are supplying their imported goods. But when the drought came in 1117, until a couple of decades before the end, again, any of you who have been to Pueblo Benito um, will have seen that Pueblo Benito was the, the six-story skyscraper. Pueblo Benito was an, a big, unwalled plaza until about 20 years before the end, when a high wall went up around the plaza. And when you see a rich place without a wall, you can safely infer that the rich place was on good terms with its poorer neighbors. And when you see a wall going up around a rich place, you can infer that there was now trouble with the neighbors. So probably what was happening was that towards the end in the drought as the landscape got filled up, the people out on the periphery were no longer satisfied because the people in the religious and political center were no longer de delivering the goods. The prayers to the gods were not bringing rain. There was not all the stuff to redistribute. They began and making trouble. And then at the drought of 1117, with no empty land to shift to, construction at Chaco Canyon ceased. Chaco was eventually abandoned. Longhouse Valley was abandoned later. The Anasazi had com committed themselves irreversibly to a complex society. And once that society collapsed, they couldn't rebuild it because, again, they had deforested their environment. In this case, then, the Anasazi case, we have the interaction of well-understood environmental impact and very well-understood climate change. From the tree rings, from the width of the tree rings, we know how much rainfall was falling in each year, and hence we know the severity of the drought. The last of these four stories from the past that I want to relate involves Norse Greenland. As the Vikings began to expand over and terrorize Europe in their raids, the Vikings also settled six islands in the North Atlantic. So we have to compare not 80 islands as in the Pacific, but six islands. Viking settlements survived on Orkney, Shetland, Faroe, and Iceland, albeit with severe problems due to environmental damage on Iceland. The Vikings arrived in Newfoundland and the New World, left after 10 years because of hostility from Native Americans. They arrived in Greenland, settled Greenland, A.D. 984, 
where they established a Norwegian pastoral economy based particularly on sheep, goats, and cattle for producing dairy products. And then they also hunted caribou and seal. Trade was important. The Vikings in Greenland hunted walruses to trade walrus ivory to Norway because walrus ivory was in demand in Europe for carving since at that time with the Arab conquest, elephant ivory was no longer available in Europe. And the Vikings vanished in the 1400s. There were two settlements. One of them disappeared around 1360 and the other sometime probably a little after 1440. Everybody ended up dead. The vanishing of Viking Greenland is instructive because it involves all five of the factors that I mentioned, and also because there's a detailed written record from Norway and a bit from Iceland and just a few fragments from Greenland, a written record describing what people were doing and describing what they were thinking. So we know something about their motivation, which we don't know for the Anasazi and the Easter Islanders. Of the five factors, first of all, there was ecological damage due to deforestation in this cold climate with a short growing season, cutting turf, soil erosion. The deforestation was especially expensive to the Norse Greenlanders because they required charcoal in order to smelt iron to extract iron from bogs. And without iron, without iron except for what they could import in small quantities from Norway, that was problems for having iron tools like sickles, but it got to be a big problem when the Norse, when the Inuit, who had initially been absent in Greenland, colonized Greenland and came into conflict with the Norse. The Norse then had no military advantage over the Inuit. It was not guns, germs, and steel. The Norse in Greenland had no guns, very little steel, and they didn't have the nasty germs. They were fighting with the Inuit on terms of equality, one people with stone and wooden, wooden weapons against another. So problem number one, ecological damage. Problem number two, climate change. The climate in Greenland got colder in the late 1300s and early 1400s as part of what's called the Little Ice Age, cooling over the North Atlantic. Hay production in Greenland was already marginal because it's at high latitude, short growing season. And as it got colder, the growing season got even shorter. Hay production got less, but that was the basis of Norse sustenance. Thirdly, the Norse had military problems with their neighbors, the Inuit. For example, the only, the only specific case we know of a, the only detailed example we have of an Inuit attack on the Norse is that the Icelandic annals of the years 1379 say, in this year, this year, the, the Skrælings, which is an old Norse word meaning wretches. The Norse did not have a good attitude towards the Inuit. The wretches attacked the Greenlanders and killed 18 men and captured a couple of young men and women as slaves. 18 men doesn't seem like a big deal in this century of body counts of tens of millions of people. But when you consider the population of Norse Greenland at the time, probably about 4,000 4, 4, people, um, 18 men stand, 18 adult men stands in the same proportion to the Norse population then, um, as if some outsiders were to come into the United States today and in one raid kill 1,700,000 adult male Americans. So that single raid by the Inuit did make a big deal to the Norse, and that's just the only raid that we know about. Fourthly, there was the cutoff of trade with Europe because of 
increasing sea ice with a cold climate in the North Atlantic. The ships from Norway gradually stopped coming. Also, as the Mediterranean reopened, Europeans got access again to elephant ivory, and they became less interested in walrus ivory. So fewer ships came to Greenland. And then finally, cultural factors. The Norse were derived from a Norwegian society that was identified with pastoralism and particularly valued cows. Well, in Greenland, it's easier to feed and take care of sheep and goats than cows, but cows were prized in Greenland, so the, the Norse chiefs and bishops were heavily invested in the status symbol of cows. The Norse, because of their bad attitude towards the Inuit, did not adopt useful Inuit technology. So the Norse never adopted harpoons, hence they couldn't eat whales like the Inuit. They didn't fish incredibly while the Inuit were fishing. They didn't have dog sleds. They didn't have skin boats. They didn't learn from the Inuit how to kill seals at breathing holes in the winter. So the Norse were conservative, had a bad attitude towards the Inuit. They built churches and cathedrals, the remains of the Greenland Cathedral is still standing today at Gardar. It's as big as the Cathedral of Iceland. And the stone churches, some of the three stone churches in Greenland are still standing. So this was a society that invested heavily in their churches, in importing stained glass windows and bronze bells for the churches when they could have been importing more iron to trade to the Inuit to get seals and whale meat um, in exchange for the iron. So the, the, there were cultural factors also why the Norse refused to learn from the Inuit and refused to modify their own economy in a way that would have permitted them to survive. And the result then was that after 1440, the Norse were all dead and the Inuit survived. Greenland then is particularly instructive in showing us that Collapse due to environmental reasons isn't inevitable. It depends upon what you do. Here are two peoples, and one did things that let them survive, and the other did things that did not permit them to survive. What then, finally, were, I mentioned environmental variables that make some societies more fragile than others. What are cultural variables that make some societies more unlikely to perceive and solve their problems than other societies? We can get some sense of this from the Greenland Norse record and from other societies around the world. There are a series of factors that make people more or less likely to perceive environmental problems growing up around them. One is misleading previous experience. The Greenlanders came from Norway where there's a relatively long growing season, so the Greenlanders didn't realize, based on their previous experience, how fragile Greenland woodlands were going to be. The Greenlanders had the difficulty of extracting a trend from noisy fluctuations. Yes, we now know that there was a long-term cooling trend, but climate fluctuates wildly up and down in Greenland from year to year, cold, cold, warm, cold. So it's difficult to, it was difficult for a long time to perceive that there was any long-term trend. That's similar to the problems we have um, today with recognizing global warming. It's only within the last few years that even scientists have been able to convince themselves that there is a global long-term warming trend because of the noise. Some years are warmer and some are colder. And while scientists are convinced, the evidence is not, not yet enough to convince many of our politicians. Problem number three, short time scale of experience. 
In the Anasazi area, droughts come back every 50 years. In Greenland, it gets cold every 500 years or so. Those rare events are impossible to perceive for humans with a lifespan of 40, 50, 70 years. They're, they're perceptible today, but we may not internalize them. For example, my friends in the Tucson area, there was a big drought in Tucson about 40 years ago. The city of Tucson almost overdrafted its water aquifers, and Tucson went briefly into a period of water conservation, but now Tucson is back to building big developments and golf courses, and so Tucson will have trouble with the next drought. Fourthly, the Norse were disadvantaged by inappropriate cultural values. They valued cows too highly, just as modern Australians value cows and sheep to a degree appropriate to Scotland but inappropriate to modern Australia. And Australians now are seriously considering whether to abandon sheep farming completely, inappropriate to the Australian environment. Finally, why would people perceive problems but still not solve their own problems? A theme that emerges from Norse Greenland, as well as from other places, is insulation of the decision-making elite from the consequences of their actions. That's to say, in societies where the elites do not suffer from the consequences of their decisions, but can insulate themselves, the elite are more likely to pursue their short-term interests even though that may be bad for the long-term interests of the society, including the children, the, the elite themselves. In the case of Norse Greenland, the chiefs and bishops were eating beef from cows and venison, and the lower classes were left to eating seals, um, and the elite were heavily invested in the walrus ivory trade because it let them get their communion gear and their Rhineland pottery and the other stuff that they wanted, even though in the long run what was good for the chiefs in the short run was bad for the whole society. We can see those differing insulations of the elite in the modern world today. Of all modern countries, the one with by far the highest level of environmental awareness is Holland. In Holland, a higher percentage of people belong to environmental organizations than anywhere else in the world. And the Dutch are also a very democratic people. There are something like 42 political parties, and none of them ever comes remotely close to a majority, but this, which would be a recipe for chaos elsewhere, not in Holland. The Dutch, Dutch are very good at reaching decisions. And on my last visit to Holland, I asked my Dutch friends, why is it this high level of environmental awareness in Holland? And they said, look around. You, um, most of us are living in polders, in these lands that have been drained, reclaimed from the sea, they're below sea level, and they're surrounded by the dikes. And in Holland, everybody lives in the polders, whether you're rich or poor. It's not the case that the rich people are living high up on the dikes, and the poor people are living down in the polders. So when the dike is breached, or there's a flood, rich and poor people die alike. And in particular, in the North Sea floods in Holland in the late 40s and 50s, when the North Sea was swept by winds and tide 50 to 100 miles inland, all Dutch in the path of the floods died whether they were rich or poor. So my Dutch friends explained it to me that um, in Holland, rich people cannot insulate themselves from the consequences of their actions. They are living in the polders, and therefore there is not the clash between their short-term interests and the long-term interests of everybody else. The Dutch have had to learn to reach communal decisions. Whereas in much of the rest of the world, rich people live in 
gated communities and drink bottled water. That's increasingly the case in Los Angeles, where I come from. So that wealthy people in much of the world are insulated from the consequences of their actions. Well, finally then, so I've talked mostly about the past. What about the situation today? There are obvious differences between the environmental problems that we face today and the environmental problems in the past. Some of those differences are things that make the situation for us today scarier than it was in the past. Today, there are far more people alive packing far more potent per capita destructive technology. Today, there are six billion people chopping down the forest with chains and bulldozers, whereas on Easter Island there were 10,000 people with stone axes. Today, countries like the Solomon Islands, wet, relatively robust environments where people lived without being able to deforest the islands for 32,000 years. Within the past 15 years, the Solomon Islands have been almost totally deforested, leading to a civil war and collapse of government within the last year or two. Another big difference between today and the past is globalization. In the past, you could get solitary collapses. When Easter Island society collapsed, nobody anywhere else in the world knew about it. Nobody was affected by it. The Easter Islanders themselves, as they were collapsing, had no way of knowing that the Anasazi had collapsed for similar reasons a few centuries before, and that the Mycenaean Greeks had collapsed a couple of thousand years before, and that the dry areas of Hawaii were going downhill at the same time. But today we turn on the television set, and we see the ecological damage in Somalia and Afghanistan, or Haiti, and we pick up a book, and we read about the ecological damage caused in the past. So we have, we have knowledge, both in space and time, that ancient peoples um, did not. Today, we're not immune from anybody's problems. Again, if 20 years ago you would ask someone in strategic assessments to mention a couple of countries in the world, in fact, I was in on such a conversation, completely irrelevant to American interests. The two countries mentioned as most irrelevant to American interests were two countries that are remote, poor, landlocked, with no potential for calling the United, causing the United States trouble, Somalia and Afghanistan, <laughs> which illustrates that today anybody can cause trouble for anybody else in the world. A collapse of a society anywhere is, an, is a global issue. And conversely, anybody anywhere in the world now has ways of reaching us. Um, we used to think of globalization as a way that we send our send to them out there our good things like the internet and Coca-Cola, but particularly in the last since September 11th, we've realized that globalization also means that they can send us their bad things like terrorists, cholera, and uncontrollable immigration. But the great advantage, so those are things that are against us, but things that are for us is that globalization also means that exchange of information and that information about the past. So we are the only society in world history that has the ability to learn from all the experiments being carried out elsewhere in the world today and all the experiments that have succeeded and failed in the past. And so at least we have the choice of what we want to do about it. Thank you.
Let's see. Professor Diamond will take some questions. There are some microphones around, I believe. We have one question there. Cultural factors in, in the decline of societies. Um, the, uh, the, the impression that I get is that you are uh, talking about them primarily in relation to environmental factors. Uh, you're talking about an elite that becomes isolated, insular, and operates without, taking in, without being um, affected by the consequences of environmental degradation. What about other forms of uh, other, other cultural forces, such as the development of political instability, uh, civil wars, um, people who are low down in the hierarchy in these largely hierarchical societies that are challenging the, the order? And could it be that a lot of these societies simply over time devolve towards political instability? What about other factors such as disease, for example? Could they play a role as well? Absolutely. In, in, in two minutes, I did not do justice to cultural factors. Can you hear, still hear me in that? Again, there's a large literature on causes of instability and civil wars and collapse of states and civil unrest. Um, and it turns out that you will go home and say, Jared Diamond has a list of eight explanations for everything. There are, there are eight variables that people have been able to identify that correlate with risk of civil war. For example, there's a, there's a database of all cases of state failures and civil wars and violent government transitions in the last 30 years so that people have mined this database. Would anybody like to guess what is the single factor that is the best predictor of the collapse of societies in the last couple of decades? This is an unfair question because it's so surprising. The strongest predictor is infant and child mortality. Countries that have had high infant or child mortality are more likely to undergo state collapse. And you can, there are many chains of, there are many links, including short survival in the workforce, high ratio of children to adults. But in brief, yes, there is a large literature of other cultural factors that are related to collapses of societies. I did not get a clear sense from your lecture I did not get a clear sense from your lecture whether the fact we have more knowledge is good or it's bad. The fact that we have more lives today? Knowledge. Or more knowledge. It all depends upon what we do with the knowledge. Um, knowledge can, I see knowledge and technology as morally neutral. That's to say they can be used for um, either doing harm or um, doing good. Um, chemical knowledge can be used to use cyanide for very efficient ways of killing people, and physical knowledge can be used for, for either generating power or killing 100,000 people at a shot. But we can also use knowledge to help ourselves. So I see knowledge as morally neutral, and it's up to us what we want to do with the knowledge. No, I, I guess uh, I'm saying that uh, from what you have studied, Possessing more knowledge, does it uh, speed up the collapsing process or slows it down? Oh, there's, there's no, we were having a conversation about this over dinner, those of you up here. Um, there's no doubt that things are going faster now than they were 500 years ago, and maybe than they were 30, 50 years ago. Uh, many things are 
a mathematician would say, positive second derivative. Things are increasing, and they're increasing faster and faster with the accumulation of knowledge. So change is going on faster and faster, which is also one of the things that makes it difficult for us today. Um, the, the rate of development of new problems is faster than it's ever been in the past. Oh, good, I don't need to shout anymore. Um, talking about cultural problems, uh, is there any correlation between the level of conservatism in the society and the likelihood of it collapsing? Between the, the, the level, level of conservatism? Um, uh, I don't know. Um, this is something that we haven't measured, we haven't tried to measure. Interesting, but I don't know. Greater emphasis put on technology. Interesting question for those of you who didn't hear it. Um, do I think that today there's more reliance that technology will come and somehow save us, even though we can't specify how? Yes, there certainly is. And um, many of my friends, particularly in the technology sector, don't take environmental problems so seriously because I'll give you a specific example. After Guns, Germs, and Sea was published, it was reviewed by Bill Gates, who liked it and gave it a favorable review. And the result was that I had a two-hour discussion with Bill Gates, who is a very thoughtful person. Um, and he's interested in lots of things. He probes deeply. And he has seriously considered positions of his own. And we, the subject turned to environmental issues. And, and I mentioned that the things that most concern me for the future of my children, because Bill Gates has young children, are environmental issues. And Bill Gates paused in his thoughtful way, and um, he, he said, not in a dismissing way, um, I have the feeling that technology will solve our environmental problems. Maybe I'm wrong, but what really concerns me is, and then bioterrorism. Okay, that's a thoughtful response, but many people in the technology sector um, assume that technology will solve our problem. I would say there are two, I disagree with that for two reasons. One is that te technology has created the explosion of modern problems while also providing the potential for solving them. But the first thing that happens is cre technology creates a problem and then maybe later it solves it, so at best there's a lag. Now, the second thing is that the lesson we've learned again and again in the environmental area is it's cheaper, much cheaper and more efficacious to prevent a problem at the beginning than to solve it by high technology later on. So it's costing billions of dollars to clean up the Hudson River, and it'll cost billions of dollars to clean up Montana. It would have cost a trivial amount to do it right in the beginning. Therefore, I do not look to technology as our savior. Yes. Uh, 
I never read anything in, in Homer, Ovid, Virgil um, that even hinted at new technology solving their problems. This, I think, is something new. Uh, could you offer a solution to today's water problem in the uh, American Southwest? To today's water Tough problems one. in the American Southwest? Uh, there, there, are some, there are some obvious solutions, which is don't use water for frivolous purposes like, like golf courses. That's a very, very simple way. Um, n another way is to conserve water um, uh, rather carefully at home. Um, those are just two examples. Um, this is a case where technology may make a difference in that the costs of desalting seawater are falling to the point where in, in Australia, near the city of Adelaide, at the rate we are going now, it'll be as cheap within the near time to desalinize salt water than to produce fresh water in this area of Australia where fresh water is, is expensive. So there are lots of obvious things that one can do to conserve water. And similarly with agriculture, much agriculture is very wasteful of water. Water could be used more efficiently in agriculture, on golf courses, that's to say not at all, and in our homes. One last question over there. Uh, do you believe that um, the technology, that technology also contributes to the problem in that uh, because we can do it, we will do it? I mean, the, um, an example is um, in the medical profession and in uh, preserving premature babies. More and more money is spent because we can achieve that. And if you extend that, you could get to uh, a case where to, to uh, the rich could uh, pay to have one uh, more child at the expense of. Difficult question. As the parent of premature twins who would not be alive except for medical technology. I have some personal investment uh, in such medical technologies. Um, is it the case that technologies get adopted just because they're there? One can think of examples. On the other hand, one can also think of counterexamples of technologies that were there and that we decided not to adopt the SST, supersonic transport, a couple of decades ago. There are societies that turned their backs on technology. And an outstanding example is that the Japanese, when they encountered firearms in the 1500s, initially adopted firearms, and within a few decades, Japan was producing more and better guns than any place in the world. And then the Japanese came to the conclusion that guns were bad for them, and over the course of a century, they succeeded in eliminating guns. There are reasons why that would work in Japan and why it would not work in a country in the middle of Europe. But so the, the short of it is that, yes, there are cases where people have decided not to adopt technology. Montana is another example. The citizens of Montana have decided not to adopt gold, cyanide, heat leach technology for extracting Gold. The technology is there. It was developed by the Bureau of Land Management and then made available to mining companies. And some of the mining companies started to adopt it, but the citizens of Montana have now decided it's available, but we don't want it. Let us thank Professor Diamond again.